My family comes from a town in West Yorkshire, in the north of England, called Halifax. The odds are you've never heard of it. It's not on many tourist trails these days. But 200 years ago, it was near the epicentre of the first industrial revolution. And as we struggle to imagine what new technologies are about to do to our societies, it's worth reflecting on those events. So the changes were immense. In my great-great-great-great-grandfather's day, Halifax was a country market town of 6,000 people, pack horse causeways, clean air and handcrafts. By the time my great-great-grandfather was born, there were more than 25,000 people and Halifax had exploded. It was a thriving centre of mechanised industrialization, with dozens of new textile mills and a totally transformed economy, landscape and social fabric. And those changes rippled out all over the world. So the raw materials for those new textile mills were being brought from faraway parts of the British Empire, like India and Egypt. And the mass-made textiles themselves then were being sent back to India and Egypt for sale. Right. The productivity boom in Halifax was a disaster for textile makers in other countries, whose industries were destroyed by the cheap British imports. Because they were forced to be part of the British Empire, they couldn't erect tariffs to protect local producers. Basically, the Industrial Revolution was a catastrophe for them, and they didn't get any say in it. Well, it wasn't great for many of the residents of Halifax either, was it? No. The new factories did bring wild new prosperity for some, but they also brought new forms of abuse, deprivation and ill health. Air pollution became a thing for the first time, along with other new crises like water supply, sewage disposal, slum housing and epidemics. These then spawn a whole new raft of ways for people to organise, trade unions, societies and the like, all designed to deal with these new social problems. So by the middle of the 19th century, the average resident of Halifax was living in a way their grandparents would scarcely recognise. The landscape, the organisation of society and even family values had all been blown away on the technological wind. Well, yeah, I mean, it really was a revolution. But what's striking to me about all this, in this context, is how little it took to bring about such massive changes. Basically, we're talking about steam power, machine tools, iron production and chemical manufacturing. And between them, those few technologies were able to transform not just Britain, where they were used, but societies all over the world. The inventors of these tools and the investors who brought them to market probably weren't thinking about giving birth to social revolution. But it happened nonetheless. Today, a whole new suite of technologies are being brought to market. So it makes sense for us to ask, what are their impacts going to be? Will machine learning be any less revolutionary than machine tools were? Will artificial intelligence or blockchain be any less transformative than steam power? And if not, what will the world look like when these technologies are mature? What aspects of our lives will they transform? And what movements will they inspire? What new ways of thinking, of legislating, even of being, are just around the corner? What, in short, is the fourth industrial revolution? Welcome to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution, the World Economic Forum's podcast series on one of our favorite subjects, the Fourth Industrial Revolution. 
I'm Anne-Marie Ingtav Larsen. And I'm James Bray. In this series, we're going to seek out the best stories that brings this complex and controversial idea to life. People in the real world who are already wrestling with the fourth industrial revolution's challenges, who are innovating and agitating for the best outcomes for all of us. First, though, we should probably address the skeptics. Plenty of people won't yet have heard of the fourth industrial revolution, or 4IR as it's popularly known here at the forum. And... I suppose there will be others who have heard of it but don't believe it's a thing. So, is there actually any such thing as a fourth industrial revolution? Of course, you would expect us to say yes, since our founder Klaus Schwab, he more or less invented the concept. But don't just take our word for it. Chinese Premier Li Keqiang himself name-checked the new industrial revolution earlier this year. And the UAE and the Korean governments have even set up fourth industrial revolution committees. And the list of big corporate wheels who have been talking about the 4IR this year includes Mark Benioff, Mukesh Ambani and Sergey Brin. Yeah, we could probably do with uh, a definition at this point. So we thought we'd ask somebody who really knows what he's talking about to give us one. But... No jargon allowed. I think the best way of thinking about it is really the next generation of internet and digital technologies which are interconnected with things, with physical things. The fourth industrial revolution is just just a label in a way it matters less than the things it's describing. And what it's describing are a continuing, perhaps accelerating series of revolutions which are slightly different in nature. Some of those revolutions are about data Uh, and a dramatic explosion of the quantity of data being generated in daily life. Some are about intelligence, where we have much more embedded intelligence, and some are about the ways in which physical things are, are, are organized. The fact that you can now, from your mobile phone, manage you know, your home energy system. The fact that you can put an implant in your body which will monitor your, your blood sugar or your, your heart rate or your blood pressure. These are a, a related set of revolutions which are unfolding pretty rapidly. They will have a big effect on our daily lives. They will have a big effect on jobs, what the jobs of the future will be. That's Jeff Mulgan, head of the UK's National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts, an august body whose job is, as they put it, to back new ideas to tackle the big challenges of our time. So, is the fourth industrial revolution one of those? In a way, this is a revolution a bit like what happened in the 19th century when we saw the emergence of the modern road system with internal combustion engines, the modern electricity system, uh, sewers, water pumping, uh, railways, telegraph and so on. That was a, a series of dramatic changes to systems which in turn really transformed almost every aspect of our life. And I think we could be now seeing a, a similarly revolutionary change to those everyday systems which support life. And that's why the stakes are very high in this. It's why so much money is uh, being invested into trying to, to shape this revolution. But it's also why so many people are concerned, because there are so many ways it could go wrong. I think the real question should be, how do we ensure these, these technologies really do enhance our lives, um, rather than... Uh, doing what some past technologies have done, which has turned out to be tools for, for harming us or indeed for reducing our freedom, uh, reducing our sense of privacy and security. And at the moment, the jury's a bit out on many of these, whether they will end up being you know, net a force for good or not. Right. So what if they are a force for bad? 
Let's talk about the worst case scenarios. In the dark side, these technologies wipe out huge swathes of employment without seeing anything remotely comparable in terms of new job creation. So they therefore leave tens of millions of people poorer, more miserable. The technologies are used either for harmful or, or trivial purposes. Perhaps at worst, they may amplify the worst sides of human nature, as is already happening on many digital social media. They amplify our more addictive or compulsive or, or the simply nasty and deceitful sides of humanity rather than uh, really the better sides of, of humanity. Perhaps they enhance warfare, the ability to kill people or for spy agencies to survey us much more than they enhance uh, health and education and the environment and so on. Ah, right. Yeah, so there are definitely some big risks here. If the fourth industrial revolution is anything like the first industrial revolution, it could be a human disaster. Yeah, it's important to inject some historical realism here. A lot of accounts of the first industrial revolution focus on the gadgets, the pace of change, and the impact on national-level fortunes. But beneath those high-level narrative, it has to be stressed there are a lot of severely damaged lives. Here is Jane Humphreys. She's a professor of economic history at All Souls College, Oxford. An industrial revolution, whether it's the first or the fourth, creates um, new forms of insecurity. Um, and vulnerability. There is a phase, this phase associated um, with the early development of factories, when I think, and, and with a boom in child labour, when I think family life is, is basically bludgeoned. At the same time, of course, um, these children, this first wave of factory employment, which is child intensive, we know that it reduces literacy. We can look at literacy rates in factory districts. Um, we can see that actually this is, the growth of literacy starts to stumble as a result of um, this early industrialization. If you have to start working very young and you're working very long hours in factories, this expression, through the mill, very common English expression, it actually means a child worker who spent a lot of their early years working shifts in textile factories and became stunted and um, with ill health as a result of that early arduous employment. At the same time, of course, you've also got massive growth of these urban areas, um, unplanned. On, I mean, Manchester grows enormously quickly. Read angles about some of the... It'll make you... Your, your gut, <laughs> your wrenching accounts, you know, of, of people living in cellars, no sanitation, you know, ra ramshackle growth of these cities incredibly quickly. And, of course, the result of this is, I mean, life expectancy also plateaus for a period of time because life expectancy in the big urban areas remains much lower than the national average. So you've got population moving into areas where life expectancy is actually lower because of bad sanitation, poor housing, noxious working conditions, and so on. There are massive implications from, if you want, a wave of technical change that has dramatic implications that where the social costs don't feature in anybody's calculus in terms of the application of this technology. And I think crucially here, harnessed to organisational change, that's actually crucial. And 
the results are that the standard of living of working people does not rise during the Industrial Revolution. In fact, many people think, many economic historians think it falls. It certainly plateaus out. This is a phase of development that economic historians call Engels' pause, because the standard of living probably doesn't start to rise in any sustained fashion until after 1850. So, you know, you might, this is, what, 50 years after the onset of the Industrial Revolution, according to the usual periodization. Of course, this isn't 1850, and we hope society today can do better at pricing externalities into new business models. But skill obsolescence isn't the end of the risks for the 4IR. As we blur the boundaries between the human body, the brain and technology, basic concepts like privacy, citizenship, even mortality, things that literally make us human, come up for debate. What if, for example? We forget who we are as humans and we basically become machines ourselves. That's Gerd Leonhard, a German futurist who makes a living from thinking about how technology is going to change our lives. For example, in order to be superhuman, to live in a virtual reality, augmented reality world and to connect directly to the internet, we would have a neural ace interface that could be possible in roughly 10 years where we are constantly connected to the network and we become super powerful but we can we cease to exist without it because we would see no real reason to even get up without that powerful connection so we would merge with technology and that would be the most dystopian scenario i can think of because it would be obviously dehumanizing in more ways than one wait wasn't there a tv series about this right so if listeners want a glimpse of this dystopia black mirror is a good place to start if you haven't already seen it, the series portrays a familiar yet eerie near future in which, for example, people can rate every human interaction they have, people can have their minds permanently uploaded to a simulated reality universe, and they can have total recall of everything they ever do or say via a chip implanted in their body. Black Mirror is ingenious, you know, there's no doubt that it's sort of near fiction, right? It's almost here. Yeah, I forgot the title of it, but there was one where it was about the rating, right? It's, everybody's being rated and what that does to people and their relationships. I think it's called... Um, nosedive. Yeah, Nosedive, that's it. That was my favorite because, you know, in a way we have this rating economy now and it kind of shows you how distorted and, 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 and senseless it is. Uh, there's some point in it, right? But only to a point. Uh, it's, it's not human in itself. So this is a real big topic is we have to use technology, but we should humanize it. And we should also say, well, that humans really aren't like this. You know, they, they are not efficient. They're not constantly rating. They cannot be really computed. You know, humans are not computable in my view. Uh, and this this episode really brought that out by saying that, you know, we treat everyone like a machine and we become a machine. What about that film where Hurricane Phoenix falls in love with an operating system? Well, her was good because it, it did bring out the possibility of saying, you know, falling in love with the OS and with a machine and having a relationship. That's kind of somewhat here and people see that people love their mobile phones and with it was very you know was very had had, had imagination and, and was pointing us to, to towards thinking right rather than pointing us to a sensationalist view of you know this ai is going to break out and kill everyone um and they, that's just kind of like you know heard that before uh, it's not really much different than terminator except terminator was kind of funny uh yeah 
I did not see the comedy in that vision of a post-apocalyptic, murderous, time-travelling robot, but these things are subjective. Visions of the future like this are going to provoke different reactions from different people. Either way, we can probably agree that many of these technologies turn the human experience into something very different, and they might be something that we all have to navigate in the real world sooner than we think. There's a quote that gets attributed to J.G. Ballard, but is true of so much sci-fi that I think it bears repeating here. The future in my science fiction has never been more than five minutes away. Okay, James, that's enough scaremongering. We don't actually think the foyer is meant to be scary. So how about a bit of tech utopianism? What about some best-case scenarios? I think the best case for the 4IR is that we see a flood of new technologies which help us solve our own problems, live our lives better. They help us live longer lives, managing our health much better. Uh, they enable us to be much more mobile with much less harm to the environment, much less, much fewer carbon uh, emissions. They help amplify our, our intelligence, our ability to understand the world and solve problems in the world. And they're associated with um, perhaps an increase both in the quantity and the quality of, of jobs. And indeed, some of the research we've been doing on the likely effect of automation on the labour market suggests there's a fairly good chance that one of the effects of, of automation, intelligence and data will actually be to lead to a net increase in jobs and certainly substantial growth in jobs in fields like health, education, food, sport, hospitality, all sorts of sectors which are about enhancing the quality of life. The best case would be that technology makes most of the things abundant that we currently have to pay for, too much to pay for, uh, and basically makes it possible uh, to solve our global long-standing problems like hunger, water, diseases like cancer, and energy. So basically in 20 years, and that's entirely feasible, we have abundant water, we have abundant energy, we have solved most, most of the major diseases. Uh, and those are huge things, right? And that is sort of the Star Trek economy, as some people call it, you know. And that would basically be the end of capitalism, or it would would bring it would bring some sort of post-capitalism, because we would basically have abundance, and uh, and we would control population in such a way that it wouldn't go beyond ten or twelve billion. And that's kind of the utopian vision of technology making it possible. But in order for that to happen, we would have to agree on politics that are based on the collective good, and they would go way beyond the traditional, you know, profit and growth kind of thinking. Hmm. Is that a pie I spy in the sky? Well, clearly we are focusing on extremes here. Some of this might, admittedly, be stretching audience credulity. But why should we be any less surprised by the future than were those who lived through previous industrial revolutions? Let's take that all-American favourite, Mark Twain. He lived from 1835 to 1910, so right through the Second Industrial Revolution. He saw it all in his lifetime. The author of some of the finest writing ever to come out of the USA clearly had a great imagination. But if, as a young man, you'd asked him to paint a picture of how the world might look by the time of his death, how might he have done? Bear in mind that the author of Huckleberry Finn was nothing if not an early adopter. I would say that Mark Twain is what I would call a, a technophile, a tech enthusiast. If he were alive today, he would have several computers, PCs and Macs, and several monitors and all the things that people have that I don't have. 
I tend to be rather retro. That's Bob Hurst. He's a general editor of the Mark Twain Project and curator of the Mark Twain Papers in Berkeley. His mission is to produce a complete scholarly edition of everything Mark Twain wrote. Fair to say, he knows his Mark Twain pretty well. Mark Twain loved technology and he invested in it, tried everything that he could get his hands on. Thomas Edison was inventing recorders, so he tried using basically a dictating machine to write with, wrote the whole of American Claimant on it. As soon as the typewriter came around, he tried that out. He bought one and tried to use it for letters. Eventually, he uh, uses the typewriter in a different way. He, uh, when he writes Life in the Mississippi, he hands the manuscript to a typist, a professional typist, and uh, she re types the whole manuscript so that he can revise it. Um, and from that point on, all of his books were typed before they were submitted to the printer. The problem is, even geniuses have trouble predicting the future in a time of rapid change. He knew, and a lot of people knew, that typesetting was going to be automated one way or another, instead of being done by hand, which he had done as a youth. He was a typo. He knew it was going to be automated, and he latched onto a guy named James W. Page, an inventor. Or maybe Page latched onto him, I'm not sure which way it went. Page had invented, or was in the process of inventing, an automatic typesetter, a very complicated, very sophisticated machine that actually set type, justified the line, and then turned around and distributed the type when it was done. Clemens was sure that he was going to make, his, make himself as rich as Croesus with this, but of course he was not. He lost a lot of money on this machine, contributed to his bankruptcy in the early 1890s, and it was a big disappointment. He was offered a chance to invest in the telephone, but he didn't. Had he done so, he would have been wealthy beyond the dreams of avarice. This despite the fact that he himself was one of the first people to own a telephone where he lived. In fact, Mark Twain was surprised even by the changes he encountered in his own backyard, on his beloved Mississippi. You know he was a pilot when he was in his early 20s, a pilot on the Mississippi. What that meant at the time was memorizing the bed of the Mississippi, which was continuously changing, memorizing all of the hazards and safe places and currents and channels and things that could give us a steamboat real trouble, like snags. He was very proud of his ability to do this, and he loved it and probably would have stayed as a pilot if it weren't for the Civil War, which came along and closed down the river, basically took his profession away from him in 1861. When he comes to write Life on the Mississippi, he decides that as preparation, he's going to go back down the river on the steamboat, um, checking out things as he goes, and then come back up uh, doing the same thing. Of course, he finds that there are various safety devices all along the river that never were there before such as channel markers and signal lights, all kinds of things that were technologically new and technologically useful because they did, in fact, make it much safer. I can't say that he was um, openly upset about all that, but I think it's clear that he did consider it as a kind of loss. At the same time, since the purpose of being a pilot was to make things safe, he could see that these changes probably were safer than it was when in the hands of individuals. Are we getting off topic here? Okay, maybe, yeah. Um, but the point I was going for is that predicting the future is hard. Twain made bad bets on the future, and he wasn't the only one. The swathes of businesses that went extinct 
and the thousands of people rendered unemployed in his lifetime probably didn't see the future coming either, so they had no choice in the matter. Which, neatly enough, brings me back to the point of all this fourth industrial revolution business. It's almost like we planned this. The reason for talking about it isn't simply to describe events around us. It's to help us shape them. Revolutions aren't some external phenomenon imposed on humanity by the unseen forces of history. They are created by us. A revolution is just the name we give to what we, through our millions of interconnected actions, do. It follows that we have the ability to determine our collective future, if we want to. The point of talking about the fourth industrial revolution is to give ourselves an opportunity to do just that. To anticipate what's coming, and perhaps to shape it more deliberately than previous generations did. So what is coming? At the forum, we think that neither the pessimist nor the optimist are fully right, simply because all is still to play for. The fourth industrial revolution is just beginning. Its outcomes are not yet set in stone, and we can still choose them. This series is about how, by anticipating the risks and innovating solutions, technical, regulatory, philosophical, we'll bring you stories of people doing exactly that, from digital sleuths hunting for algorithmic bias, to entrepreneurs hoping to blockchain your tuna, and the pirates who want to digitize your democracy. We hope these stories will inspire others to do likewise, because at the end of the day, it is what we all do that will determine the meaning of the fourth industrial revolution. This story has yet to be written. Will we look for the dangers ahead? Will we shelter the exposed and vulnerable and let everyone share in the bounty? Or like the craft workers of Halifax in 1800, will we simply watch as the hurricane hits? You've been listening to Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution with me, James Bray. And me, Anne-Marie Larsen. Thank you for listening. Join us for the next episode, where we will look at the prospects for AI beyond the headlines about human extinction. What is the promise and the peril of artificial intelligence, really? And if you want to know more about this topic, check out the World Economic Forum's new book, Shaping the Fourth Industrial Revolution. The book is designed to give clarity to how all these exciting new technologies impact all aspects of society and empower you to engage personally in this unfolding revolution. You can buy the book on Amazon. <laughs>